Well, good morning, church. It is good to be together. If you're new, I want to especially welcome you here to the Parks Church. Glad that you've joined us. Hey, if you have your Bible, um, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where we'll be. If you are new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and this is a great day to join us. This is week one of our uh, journey in 1 and 2 Samuel. And... Uh, uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We, we, we find ourselves preaching through books of the Bible about 90% of the time. And we just finished a three-week series on uh, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, we just finished uh, Hebrews, a great New Testament study for us, but really excited to be in 1 Samuel. All right, stand with me in Scripture reading. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your copy of God's Word. Verse 1. We're going to go through verse 18. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, and Elhu, son of Tohu, and son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, I feel like every time we start a book, um, we should it's good to remind ourselves why we teach like this, especially as we go through Old Testament books, First and Second Samuel, obviously being Old Testament books. Um, there are going to be some Sundays where we're going to have to like get into the weeds, if you will. 
Um, many of you probably haven't done deep, extensive study on First and Second Samuel, which, which is okay, but most of you know several or a handful of the huge Bible stories that are in First and Second Samuel, so that's going to be really good. But teaching like this, and I'm not saying every church has to teach like this. This is just one of our core convictions as a faith family uh, because it builds a muscle we desperately need as disciples. It builds that individually and it builds that corporately. It builds muscle that takes time and work, right? Us laboring to go through verses, right? 18 verses discovering what God is doing. Go, go, going through books like this also forces us in a very fast-paced culture, right, onto the next thing, the next way, uh, information, the way it gets uh, transmitted quickly. It forces us to do something that's kind of counter. Slow down. Slow down. It forces us to be confronted with topics and ideas that are um, oftentimes very uncomfortable, that in just our nature, or even as a, a, a preacher, we might otherwise go in different directions or never come upon. It allows us this time and this space to think deeply, and this is the most important thing, to think deeply upon what the Lord is saying to us as a community. And so I'm excited. I'm really excited about First and Second Samuel and, and where we'll go. And so I want to start just with a little backdrop, a little backdrop that sets up First uh, Samuel chapter 1. Uh, the books, First and Second Samuel, uh, we don't know the author. We don't know who wrote these books, uh, but we know who inspired that unknown author, and that is God the Holy Spirit inspired these scriptures uh, nearly 3,000 years ago. That's the timing of when First and Second Samuel would have been written. But culturally, the backdrop is really important. Culturally, what we find ourselves as we uh, engage First and Second Samuel is that we're coming through a season with the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, where they are ruled by judges, by a, by a judge. And this is a transitionary time because now they're going to be moving to, they've requested, they've asked, and are searching for a king to change their, their leadership structure over. So they're passing from one era to another, a new era. Now, this happens, even if you think just historically over, uh, kind of removing even some biblical framework here, historically to different nations and different places, and even us as a globe. You think of something like the, uh, take the Industrial Revolution, right? That was a time of transition. And what historians tell us and sociologists tell us about transition, transitionary times are, is that there is always a middle, kind of a middle spot when you're transitioning from one era to a new era. And in that middle spot is what they call a gray zone. It's kind of murky. It's kind of confusing. Uh, things seem to be happening that, 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 that are kind of chaotic. And, and, and one of the things as I was reading some, some history just in transitioning from one era to another is that um, global health crisis or issues are oftentimes transitionary periods where it happens, it rolls out, and that tells you an indicator that there is a new day or a new era coming. Not that we would have any experience with that, not that we would just have walked through that, right? No, 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 no. But, but in many ways, yes, we did. For those of you like, what happened? Sorry, you, you just woke up and you're like three years later. Um, we are walking through a time like that. Am I saying it is exactly like what they're walking through with the judges and the kings? No, I'm not. But I think we can all identify that the culture that we live in Confusion, chaos, gray define what we feel and what we can even see with our eyes. And so the, the question I want to ask is, how do we as a church and as God's people lean into that and live faithfully in that kind of setting? How do we live faithfully in that kind of setting? That's where First and Second Samuel are. 
They're in that transitionary period, and you're going to see this faithfulness lived out. But the best backdrop I could give you for 1 Samuel is from God's word itself. And that's found in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse in that book of Judges. Now, you have to understand that the book of Judges really is this pattern of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, over and over and over again. And what's interesting about where we are heading into 1 Samuel is now the division for the people of God is not from outside primarily, it's actually from inside. So the disunity that is disrupting at the most um, kind of impactful way is happening within Israel, within the people of God. That's the enemy's tactic. Not just to zoom forward to the church and where we are. Listen, what he wants to do is to break unity, break fellowship within the church. That's his plan. And you're going to see some ways that he does this through First and Second Samuel that still apply today. But the culture and context within Israel that was going on was right here. Give me that. In those days, there was no king, right? That's what they're transitioning to. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They did whatever they wanted, what was right in their own eyes. Now, I, I think that that tagline, he or she did what was right in their own eyes, could potentially be a tagline for every generation. But this is the one we're living in, right? So let's talk about ours. That tagline, no doubt, could be a tagline for our generation, the generation that we are living in, right? You can make up your own morality, right? What's moral to you? What's good to you? What's right to you? You can decide your own truth, right? Truth is relative, right? Which, in fact, means it can change in an instant. It can change in an instant to suit you for that day or particular season of life, right? We have something called the metaverse. Don't ask me to talk about what that is. I just know it at the level that I don't know what that is, right? where we can create our, our own realities, if you will. And all of this is celebrated, right? Whatever's right in your own eyes is what's prized most. That that is a cultural virtue. You're able to do what's right in your own eyes. Isn't that awesome? You finally arrived. Have we? And maybe the question from you, if you're peering into this, you would go, who else's eyes would I live through? Right? Who else's eyes would I live through? What, who else's eyes would I see things through other than my own? Great question. First and second Samuel, they're going to lead us where? Can you trust your eyes? Can you trust what you see? Can you trust your feelings? Can you trust that reality that you're creating, that morality that you're building? And over the next several weeks, three weeks particularly, we're going to look at this idea of responses. So if you're taking notes, this idea of responses, well, I know that that may not sound like a super exciting journey. Um, if you really think about it, most of our lives are made up of responses. Students, think about this, your day of how you respond at school to those other interactions with students or, or teachers or things happening or, or how you respond at work, how we respond in our lives when we're disappointed. How about when we, 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 we find ourselves in life surprised by something? That diagnosis comes in that medical portal. We read something. Or when someone surprises us, when things don't go as planned. And in fact, what we're doing right here, you're, you're hearing a sermon we just sang songs to the Lord. You had a choice. Am I going to respond or not? Am I going to respond to him? Am I going to respond? How am I going to respond to the sermon? And, and there's, no, 
There's no middle ground to this. A non-response is a response. The response of apathy is still a response. I pray that that's not it. Or are we going to respond going, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in my heart and in my life? How am I going to walk this out obediently? Like, what happens? How do you respond when something happens in your life that you thought would never happen? Have you ever had that take place? I never thought that would be me. I never thought that would be my family. I never thought I would get that diagnosis. I've been, I've been, I, I never thought that would impact me. How did you respond? Our responses often differ, right? The responses we tell other people to have versus the ones we actually make when it hits home, don't they? Be honest. Oh, we got good godly counsel for you. But doing that when it hits home. See, this is a very interesting start to 1 Samuel. And if you have your Bible, keep it open. The first, really, verse into two verses with all those names that I struggled through, that's why I didn't have somebody else do the, the, the scripture reading. I was like, I'll bear the embarrassment of trying to pronounce those, all right? That sounds like a start to like an introduction to a king. That sounds like an introduction that an that, 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 that original reader, audience reader, would have looked at and gone like, ooh, the son, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, right? Like, what? Who is this? Elkanah! This guy's going to be our king. This guy's going to be our king. Like this is, he's, he's setting us up. And then what does the writer, I love this, what does the writer of 1 Samuel do? He takes a hard turn, a hard left turn, and fixes our attention then on an ordinary woman named Hannah. A woman who finds herself in deep, private pain and grief. And we're going to spend three weeks, because I think it's so foundational, we're going to spend three weeks with Hannah. And one of the things you're going to see in 1 Samuel that is a reoccurring theme is this, that the solution to Israel's issues, the solution to the disunity, the, the, the solution to the leadership crisis that they're facing will not be found in expected places. It will not be found where they expect it, right? And, and not found in expected places. Like that should, like there should be some like Christmas messages going off in your, your mind and that's right and that's good to make that connection. That's how God works. He works through these unexpected channels. The story here doesn't begin. This is a transitionary period. They need a leader. They need somebody who starts out who's powerful and prominent to lead the way. Hannah. Baron Hannah. Ordinary and hurting. And I want you to hear this, that some of God's most important works, and if you know your Bible, you know this to be true, are birthed out of places of deep pain and deep confusion. Did you hear me say that? Some of God's most significant works, biblically speaking, and in our lives individually and corporately, happen in and through places of deep pain and deep confusion. These are confusing days, yes? right? Yes, they are. Could it be, just dream with me here for a second, that this is God's wake up, church. Wake up. I want you to see that I am doing, it's, it, it's, it's appearing that God's getting more marginalized and pushed out and pushed out. What if this God, is God going, listen, wake up. 
I want you to see that I want to do something so unique and so special in this confusing gray zone, in this transitionary period. I want to do something with my church, if you'll see it. If you'll open your eyes, right? And don't open your eyes to the expected places, the powerful and the prominent. Open your eyes to the unexpected places, the barren woman. Or you're like, nothing could come from her. Literally, it said twice God closed her womb. I'll get more into that next week. Unexpected places. I love teaching narratives in the Bible. Because narratives have a unique way of inviting us into the story that God's writing. For far too many of you, God's word is treated like an owner's manual. Like a manual you get to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, right? Where you're like, which is terrible. And so maybe that's a bad example. But you're like, okay, step one. Okay, step two. This is, that's not it. Here's how the Bible was written and meant for us to understand. It's a story. It's God's story of redemption, beginning to end, end to beginning. It's a story that he is inviting us into. And so that's how we interpret these narratives. And I love it because it causes us to ask questions. Like, God, what are you doing? Why are you starting 1 Samuel in the strangest way possible? If I'm starting a story, this ain't how I'm starting, and this isn't who I'm starting with. And God goes, I'm writing a way different story, Kyle. I'm writing a different story. And so let's, let's take a, a journey here with Hannah. And the first place I want to go is into the context of her pain. The context of Hannah's pain. We have to get this. And did you, when I was reading the scripture reading, did you, did you feel it a little bit? If you felt it a little bit, you, 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 you missed what Hannah's really feeling. Because whole, these whole 18 verses are just a woman in agony. Contextually, Hannah, culturally speaking, um, since she was unable to have children, her society attached every bit of meaning to that, that activity. Where she found herself and when she found herself bearing children was everything. And I mean that with the fullest extent of weight. Economically, the more children you had, the more hands you had. I'm not, I don't mean to be crass here. The more fields you could have, the bigger fields you could have. So economically, they would be able to expand or whatever their family business was. They could, they could do more of it as she had more children, as we have more hands. Socially, right? The security she had socially was tied to her children. There was no social security back in that day. The social security was the ch- were the children. They were the ones who cared for particularly the women, right? So you would have children, more children, so that you would be cared for later on in life. Having children was not just economic, it wasn't just social, it was also patriotic or political, if you will. Who, who, who won the, 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 the day, uh, meaning uh, the, the land war? Those who had the bigger armies. Those nations who were larger, and so how did your nation grow? You, your nation grew by having more and more children, so it was patriotic to have children, right? Keep having children, right, so our army can get bigger, so we can keep flooding the land, so we can have more and more and more. But there's also something unique with Hannah, and it was this familial pressure. Elkanah, I don't think, was just this list at the beginning just to kind of set us up to go into Hannah. I think it was also to say that Elkanah was a man of stature, he was a man of wealth because he traveled to Shiloh. Every year he took his family. There was a family name tied to it. And so Hannah desperately wanted to continue that family name for her husband and for his family. But yet what? She can't. She can't do it. Those four things are not possible. And so she's grieving. 
But I don't think those four create the depth of grief she has. I think the fifth pressure creates that. And for Israelite women, it was the theological pressure. It was that for Israelite women, there was a greater or grander story with their God, Yahweh. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, right, with Adam and Eve, God looked at them and said what? Be fruitful and multiply. Or, or, or how about Father Abraham? When, when God made a covenant with Abraham, who was the father of Israel, right? Who was the father of this nation that we're talking about. What did he say, again, to a barren woman and an old man, right? What did he say? Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have, Abraham. So with every pregnancy within Israel, it was like them participating in this covenant, keeping God of being fruitful and multiplying, and then also growing this great nation that he spoke to Abraham about. It's incredible. But there's one even weightier than all that, and that's found in Genesis chapter 3, I think verse 15. It's after the fall, after where sin comes into the world. The Lord says to the woman, right, I'm going to give you, like childbirth is going to be yours. You're going to bear children, but here's what you need to know. From the seed of woman, a child from a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, bruise the head. That's what Genesis says. It's going to be literally from you, Lady, women, childbearing is how the Messiah is going to come and deliver the people. So imagine this as an Israelite woman with every birth. What are you thinking? Is this him? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one you've promised to us to be our deliverer, right? And you'd raise that child up and about age three, you're like, no, I definitely know. This is not the Messiah, right? But Hannah never had that experience. Hannah Hannah never got to experience what she would define as the God-given purpose for her. God-given purpose for her nation. You see, those first four, any pagan nation would have had those pressures. Anyone in this time would have had those pressures. This last one was unique to the Israelites. Are you getting a taste of her pain? Are, Are you getting a taste of the weight? And now listen, in any culture, and at any, any time in all of history, barrenness is particularly difficult for any woman. But for Hannah, it was everything. Absolutely everything. And there were constant reminders of her pain. Her name. There's some people in here, I'm sure, with the name Hannah. Her name means favored one. But her current state of affairs communicates something a little different, doesn't it? Or, or how about every year traveling to Shiloh is what we read here in 1 Samuel, right? To, to, to participate with the feasts that are, are meant to remind the people of God of his faithfulness. And what it reminds her of is her barrenness and her inadequacy. Or her, how about every time she looked over at Penina, right? This, this, this other wife of Elkanah. Now, bookmark, hold on, right here. Um, Polygamy in the Bible. I'll hear this often. Like, the Bible never says that polygamy is a sin. And you're right, right? That, that, That is right. But the Bible does actually something more incredible than that. That it paints a picture every time polygamy is present in the Bible, it is dysfunction and chaos and confusion. It's a response out of sin to take control into their own hands. And so the Bible does something far greater than just go, it's this, don't do it, right? It's done that to us before and we break it all the time. But with this one, it paints a chaotic picture. 
And so that's what we have. We have Elkanah probably taking matters into his own hands by getting another woman. This is not prescriptive by God. He's not telling us to do that. In fact, he would say, don't do that because it creates confusion and chaos and, 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 and just dysfunction because it's not the design. It's not the design. Okay, back, 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 back. And so you have Penina, this other wife, okay? You have Penina, this other wife, and she was not a neutral bystander. That's what the text tells us. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says that she was Hannah's rival, and she provoked her twice. Verse 6 and 7, it makes it a, a note to say it, she provoked her. Now, the word provoke here in the Hebrew is only used like this one time in your Bible, and you see it right here in 1 Samuel. The other time this word provoke, it literally is talking about a storm. So the word provoke here means roaring. She's thundering at Hannah. What is she thundering? She's thundering her kids. She's thundering her status. She's thundering how, how fruitful, that's what her name Penina actually means, how fruitful she is. She's, she's, she's thundering her portions. And so everywhere Hannah goes, imagine this, there are reminders and reminders and reminders of how she falls short. And it's with intensity. It's not passive. Remember that word intensity. Okay, let me, let me, let me bring this a little closer to home. I want you to pay attention here. All cultures, right? Because you look at this and go, man, how oppressive was that for women? Right? How, 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 how shameful was that? All cultures put things in front of everyone, in front of people, and say, you've got to do this. You've got to be this. You, you, you shouldn't be this, or you're nothing. Every culture does that. Every single one. Our culture included. One commentator, I love how he put it, he says, we, as the Western Americans, we live in individualistic culture. That's different than what Hannah lived in. Our culture oppresses us with competitive pressures. That's what an individualistic culture does. There is no such thing as an unoppressive culture or a non-pressuring culture. Now hear me, he didn't make this caveat, I'm gonna make this caveat. Not all cultures are equally oppressive. Praise God, right? Not all cultures are equally oppressive, but they are oppressive in some form or another's. And we, we, us, right here, are constantly surrounded by all of these cultural reminders that roar and thunder about how we fall short of expectations set for us in all the spheres we find ourselves in. I don't care if you're a middle school student here, or you're a high school student, or you're in college, or you're a new graduate, or you're an empty nester. Culture sets before all of us expectations and says, if you don't meet that, you're nothing. The question is, how does that affect us? The question really, back to the, the, the theme, how do we respond to that? How do we live faithfully in light of that? I mean, social media, goodness, I don't have my phone on me, which is a rare feeling, right? It's like, we have... Penina, right there, all the time, roaring, thundering, reminding us, our entertainment, checking out at Target, right? I didn't even know they still made magazines. Why do they make magazines? Who reads magazines, all right? But they're still there. And you look at them and you go, man, my house really isn't pretty enough, right? I'm not pretty enough. I look at magazines, I'm like, I'm too pretty. You know, like, oh, what, what's going on here? Like all these pressures where you're like, I must meet this expectation. And guess what? That expectation, that pressure is constantly moving. It's constantly shifting, right? I mean, I'm at my kid's open house at their school. And I'm walking up, I'm looking at the little, you know, the little things that kind of hang in there. I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like my kid, she did, they did a good job. 
And I go down the line, I'm like, no, that's a good job. I'm like, whoa, like, he, you know, you're laughing because you've been there, right? You don't go, man, I really just want to celebrate Sarah and how phenomenal her handwriting is and how, how great of an artist she is. No, what do you do? You look at it and you go, what am I doing as a parent? I've got to get my kid in art camp. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got to get private art lessons for my child. So, you know, that, that's the competitive pressures. You feel it. I feel it all the time. There are these constant roars and thundering all around us. What if I miss out? Students, every day you walk into your classroom, I don't care if you're homeschool, Christian school, public school, it doesn't matter. Roaring, thundering, be this, don't be this. One of the reasons I, I just struggle with social media, right? I'm not giving you like what your personal philosophy should be, but mine. I struggle because it's just feeding that in me, the roaring, the forming, the shaping. Your church isn't big enough. Your church is too big. It's too this, it's too that, it's not this. It's, it's always moving and fleeting. How do we respond? What do we do with all these pressures roaring around our lives constantly? And this is where I want to look at Hannah's response. And for the next two weeks, We'll see her responses. But the first one is to Penina. Verse 7. Hannah wept and would not eat. That's, that is Hannah's first response. At a feast where she should be enjoying, a feast that she should be partaking and celebrating, right? I, I love what, what Nathan said about these monuments and these moments of feast. They're meant to re remember God's goodness. Hannah goes, I can't fake it. I'm not going to fake it. And she's weeping. And she goes, I can't, I can't eat this meal that was, is even supposed to be about remembering God's goodness. I'm not going to fake it. She didn't play the happy little church girl tiptoeing in when inside everything is ravaging and the pressures are crushing her. Many of you, maybe that's where you find yourself. You're smiling on the outside. It's kind of fake it till you make it theology, right? Like, and God's going, no, I want you to be real. And for Hannah, that looked like lament and not eating and fasting. Notice it didn't look like her attacking Penina. It didn't look like her with this passive-aggressive behavior, right, toward Penina. It didn't look like her lashing out at the children or, or, or being like, you know, Elkanah loves me more, right? Did you see my double portion? You got one, I got two, right? She didn't run to Enneagram, right? That's not a statement about Enneagram, but she didn't run to that to figure out who she is, to, how to communicate with her rival. Hannah turns to her intensification, not toward Penina and not toward anything else here on earth. She turned her intensification to who? The Lord. The Lord. And then we have Elkanah. Oh, I, I love the guy in this text. Um, he is portrayed in this text as a good man. He sought a wrong source with two wives, but he doesn't divorce Hannah. He could have, culturally speaking. He doesn't divorce her. He loves her. He serves her. He leads his family to Shiloh and worship year after year. But hear me, this guy is still human. He is a man and a husband. So the potential for him to say something really dumb is really high, okay? <laughs> and he does. He does. He does it. So all of us guys can look back. This has been happening for 3,000 years. Um, 
look at it, Elkanah looks at her and goes, why are you crying? He sees her pain. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? And then here's this statement at the end of verse 8. That's the kicker. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? No! Like, Hannah didn't respond that, but I would respond for her. No, you're not. In Elkanah, what he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate, I believe, with good intentions that surely his love toward her can fix and remedy the void in her soul. Doesn't our romance fix it? Doesn't our relationship fix it? Doesn't, doesn't your love toward me and my love toward you, isn't that better than 10 sons? He uses this exaggeration term, right? And this is where we have to understand that is absolutely wrong that our culture will constantly try to feed us, particularly with romance or earthly relationships, these vain and failed attempts to push away pain. And the enemy is glad to put a support system around our life with Job's friends who maybe at times say the wrong thing, words of wisdom or whatever they want to say. But let me tell you, Romans 12, verse 15, weep with those who weep is actually really, really hard. You want to know in those moments like this, What is the best thing for another believer to do? Just be present. Just be present. Just to be there listening and weeping with those who weep as other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then verse 9. This is the turning point in this text. And you might miss it if you just just did a cursory reading. It says that Hannah rose, verse 9. So a reader who would look at the Hebrew, the original language, they would go, wait a minute, something's happening. Like, she's about to throw a dish. She's about to go nuts. She's about to do something. Like, this is a decisive. Hannah's making a decision right at this moment. And it's not, she just excused herself from the table. She got up with, like, an authority that everybody was like, oh, we can give Hannah some space. You ever have that? And where does Hannah go? To the temple. To be before the Lord. So Hannah's resolve in response to all of these things, all of these pressures, right, in her life, all of the roaring and thunder in her life is to do what she only knows to do, and that is to throw herself before the Lord. It's not to throw herself before friends. Friends are great. Gospel community is necessary. It's not to throw herself before wine, but to throw herself before the Lord. In fact, she's going to be, she's going to be indicted on being drunk. It's Eli. Eli looks at her, and what he sees on the surface is a woman in deep pain, in deep agony, praying, but her mouth is moving. And so what does the, Eli's the high priest. He looks at her and he goes, woman, how long are you going to be drunk? How long are you going to keep drinking away the pain? So here is where we might take a note to be careful in trusting our eyes. Be careful about judging someone or something at face value on the surface. This Eli, he's the stinking high priest. He of all people should be sensitive to the spirit of God to go, is this woman in pain? Is this woman drunk? She looks desperate. It sounds desperate. What is going on? Lord, help me. That's church. That's how we should approach people. 
Lord, my eyes are telling me one thing. My, my eyes maybe say this is out of order or this. Lord, you need to confirm what is taking place here because what was taking place before Eli was true, authentic worship, something probably that hasn't happened a long time in that place, and Hannah was bringing it. He should have been the first to recognize it, but he wasn't. And I love Hannah's response to him after his kind of rebuke of her. She doesn't go, you fool. High priest, yeah, some high priest you are. I'm not drunk. Give me the sobriety test, right? Like, she didn't do that. She goes, listen, it's like in all humility. She goes, my Lord. She goes, don't, don't despise me. Don't reject me. And she says this, and I think it's verse, verse 16. She says, don't, don't count me as a worthless woman. That's how she feels. Hannah's not bottling up her pain. Hannah's not faking it. She is very honest through this whole thing. And what Hannah's teaching us and showing us and leading us here is that the place, the only place where we can escape those pressures, the oppression that culture will throw at us, that things happen in this sin-filled, broken world, the only place where we can escape that is in the presence of God. Because it's in the presence of God that he realigns everything in our lives. Now, for some of you, that's going to sound really trite and really simplistic, but it's what Hannah believes more than anything. That until God sits on my life above everything else, I'll never escape the pressures. I'll never escape the weight of this life. Hannah's prayer, maybe she prayed all her life, God, I want a child, give me a child. But now in the presence of God, she's going, God, you are ultimate and I want a child for you. Did you hear Hannah's prayer? She made a vow. She goes, God, if you give me a child, Lord, Lord, if you so see fit to give me a child, what's she gonna do? Hand that child right back to the Lord. What does that mean? She gives up every single one of those benefits because the child now is not ultimate. God is no longer the means to an end to get a child. Who is ultimate is God. The child now is a means to glorify God as he sits at the pinnacle in top of her life. And then how did Hannah go away? Verse 18, after being before the Lord. Totally different. She's eating. And I love how it ends here in verse 18. Her face was no longer sad. Like, it's like the writer wants you and I especially to know that the physical ramifications of her, the, 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 like you could see it, everyone could see it, Penina, Elkanah, Eli, that her face came in sad. Her posture came in stooped, desperate, but she left what? Oh, with a hunger in her stomach, enjoying food, and now a smile on her face. Why? Because God had answered her prayer? You don't see that yet. You don't see that. What you see is a woman who has been before the Lord, and that's it. That the change of her countenance is not conditional on God meeting her prayer request or her preference or her demands. Hannah is solely satisfied because she has been with the Lord, and the Lord wants to change some of your faces and my face today as we are before him, as we're with him, maybe not change our circumstances, but he wants to change our countenance because we've been with him. 
So maybe the start to 1 Samuel is not that strange. Maybe it's not that strange because what God is doing and has always been doing is trying to set his people's feet on a firm foundation. Maybe that's why barrenness is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. That God wants us to clearly know that he is the one in charge. That he is the one that we come before in all of these pressures that mount, in all of the chaos and confusion that are around us, that he wants us before him more than anything else because it's then we'll not do what's right in our own eyes. We'll begin to see as he sees. And that's what changes Hannah. And that's what will change you and me in our lives. Now, we don't just read the, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We read it, Revelation to Genesis as well. And I can't shake 1 Peter 5 from my mind. And this has been my prayer for us. As we end, hosts, will you come forward as we get ready for communion? 1 Peter 5 says this, verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves. Come honestly. Come like Hannah, not bottling it up, not stuffing it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you believe that? Throw your anxieties, throw your cares before God, right? Bring your ugly crying, right? Men, Shed that tear, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, the Lord just wants the honesty from your heart of where you are. The lament, the pain, he can handle it. He can handle it. In the end of that same chapter, it's actually a, a prayer by Peter. Um, he says this, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, get this, God will do this, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Man, those are the four things I'm longing the Spirit to do in this chaotic, confusing culture, whether it's diagnosis or it's, it's these pressures from outside in, whatever it is, Lord, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, do that. God, even as we come to the tables of communion, Lord, I pray that you would meet us there uniquely as you have promised. Lord, for those who are just heavy under the weight of anxiety, may they maybe for the first time honestly cast their care upon you and be confident that you are restoring and confirming and establishing and strengthening our lives. God, it's only through that. God, forgive me for running a lot of different places and spaces and not to you. Let us run to you this morning as we walk to these tables of fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.